0: 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning we're looking at verses 11 through 15. Verses 11 through 15. Uh, Last week in the introduction to the message, I spoke a little bit about the confusion that our culture has with gender roles. And while the language used in our society is often couched in terms of equality... The reality is our culture is gradually trying to turn men into women. So not only is there no distinction between the sexes, our culture says that the best thing is for men to be less manly and more effeminate. That is their message to us. After the Thursday evening Bible study, maybe it was the next morning, can't remember exactly, my wife pointed out to me that King David, right before he he dies, he begins his final words to his son Solomon, who will be king very shortly, by saying this, Be strong, therefore, and prove yourself a man. So apparently, King David thought there was some value in his son being manly. This whole issue of gender roles is one of the hottest issues today, not only in our culture, but also in the church. It's often put into a question like this. What roles can women have in the church? Many people believe that if you say anything negative, like women can't do this or that, it means that you believe men are superior to women, or that you are saying that women are inherently inferior to men, that you're artificially setting limitations on what women can do. You are creating a glass ceiling. But the reality is, Men and women are different. They are different biologically and they are different psychologically. But in no way do these differences imply inequality of being, inequality of essence, inequality of value. Neither do they say anything about one's intellectual capacity or ability. In the Bible, when we see that men and women have different roles in life, we cannot read our culture and our cultural problems back into the text. Our opinions, our perspectives don't matter. We don't start with what we think. We don't start with... With how we feel, and then try to understand the Bible from that perspective. We start with the question what does the Bible say? And then we move our thinking, our feelings, and our behavior to be in line with the Bible. I'm sure that many of you have heard of the acronym CRT. Have you heard of that before? Let me see your hands. CRT, critical race theory is what it is. This is based on critical theory. CT, Makes Critical race theory based on critical theory. And this kind of thinking has crept into the church in a way that says, Your personal experience is a valid way to interpret the text of scripture. So you interpret the scripture through your personal experience. And we reject this for several reasons. Number one, it denies the historical nature of the Bible. The Bible was written at a specific time in history, in a specific language, in a specific cultural setting. To say that the Bible can be interpreted according to my personal experiences and my personal perspective is to deny these historical realities. The second reason we would deny and reject this type of thinking is because it removes the objective truth of the Bible. Because the Bible then is totally dependent upon my perspective, its meaning is dependent on what I think from my personal experience. And so my personal experience and life now is what provides truth and not the Bible. So don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. There's only one truth. There is only one meaning to any given text of Scripture. And it's because of this that we work hard to interpret the Bible according to the languages in which it was originally written, according to the time in which it was written, and according to the cultural context in which it was written. And because the Bible is true and it is the truth, we can know it, and we can obey it. So don't be deceived. As we look at our text this morning, one of the important things for knowing the truth of this passage is to know its setting, its setting. I believe this passage we're looking at is setting uh, The setting of it is in the church meeting, the gathering of the church together. And the reason for this is that it seems to me that uh, given Paul's charge to Timothy that is related to the false teachers, these are false teachers in the church, and that the exhortations that follow this charge are addressed to the corporate meeting of the church. This corporate context goes all the way through the end of chapter 3. Look at verse 15 of chapter 3 with me real briefly here. I want you to see this. So chapter 3, verse 15, says, But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church. And just stop right there. So I believe everything that we have covered up to this point is related to the church meeting, the church gathering. So the things that Paul says in this passage are specifically addressing what is happening in the church gathering. And because of what he says and how he says it, we shouldn't simply just limit it to the church gathering. He doesn't intend it to be only applied in the church meeting. It has a broader application, a broader implication. So Paul is not saying in chapter two here, this is the way you behave in church, but you can behave however you want when you're outside of the church gathering. So we're not going to limit Paul in that way. He's going to give us general truths, but they're truths that are directly applied to the church gathering. Another consideration about the setting is that the church meeting in the first century is not exactly like our church meetings today. I think in the first century they would find it quite odd to walk into a church service like this, where we're in a nice building We have nice seats. We have a a PA system, not a public, we have amplification. We have all these things. We have a pulpit that is uh, way up here above everyone else. I think they would find this a bit strange because in the first century, they really didn't have any dedicated church buildings. The believers met in houses and other buildings which had other purposes. And the church meeting was wherever the church happened to be gathered together. It was people of the church, not a church building. Secondly... In the first century, they didn't have anything like we have with regards to Sunday school, nursery, youth groups, or anything. They didn't have anything like that as a part of their church meeting. Uh, The church meeting was simply a single meeting, and very often it followed the pattern of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where there was a time of teaching, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And it's important to keep this in mind so that as we are going through the text today... We don't read back into the Bible our experience of the church meeting today. And so where are we going this morning? Where are we going? We're going to see that Paul specifically is addressing women of the church, Christian women, and their role in the church. At the beginning of chapter 2, Paul gave an exhortation to pray. And then he gave exhortations Uh, He he exhorted the men to pray. And then he exhorted the women to display their profession of godliness with good works. And today, he's going to give an exhortation about learning, teaching, and leading in the church. And and next week, as we get into chapter three, we're gonna see that Paul continues to give exhortations about church leadership. So today, Paul is gonna make four points. Here's the four points that Paul makes. He's gonna make a point of the provision for the education of women in the church. Secondly, he's gonna make the point of a prohibition against women teaching or having authority over the men of the church. Thirdly, he's gonna give an explanation or he's gonna tell us the basis why this prohibition is true and must be followed. And finally, he's gonna give hope for the preservation of women. And so let's begin this morning, and and it just dawned on me that we didn't pray, did we? <laughs> we didn't pray. So let me stop what we're doing and pray, and then we'll get into verse eleven. Lord, we give you thanks for this time that we have together, and uh, we we certainly want to commit it to you that you would be honored and glorified in everything we do. And uh, Lord, even as we see the Alcaraz family here and are present with us this morning, we give you thanks for bringing them through a a difficult time and continue to pray for Miguel and his recovery. And uh, Lord, we're just thankful for your preservation of them. And Father, for the different other physical needs that are represented here this morning, we ask that you would, Apply your caring hand in each case. You know exactly what is needed right now at this very second, whether it's physical healing or whether it's spiritual encouragement, whether it's the meeting of an emotional need. You know what is necessary, and so we commit all those things to you. Father, as we look at this passage this morning, help us to be submissive to the text, help us to put ourselves under the text, help us then, as we understand it, to be obedient to it. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So look at verse 11 here, verse 11, here's the provision, here is the provision there in your notes says, let women learn in silence with all submission. I want us to notice five things about this verse. Five things about this verse. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. First, I want you to see that it's a command. It's a command. And it's directed towards the women of the church. Literally, we could render it this way. A woman She is to learn. Exclamation point. So this is not merely giving permission, per se. Um, This is not as if Paul is begrudgingly saying, Well, women can learn. Uh, Women women can learn. You know, I really don't want to do it, but women can learn. No, this provision is a command. And since it is a command, it is to be obeyed. Secondly, letter B, notice this is a statement of inclusion. So it's an inclusion. Uh, The command is for women to learn. The women of the church are to learn. You know, in the first century, the education of women was often unimportant or even non-existent. And certainly that was true compared to males. Uh, much more emphasis was put on the learning of males than women. And so the education of women just did not take a priority in the cultures of that day. But here, women are included in the activity of learning. And and this word, learn, is the verb form of the word disciple. So learn is is connected to a disciple, being a disciple. Uh, The essence of a disciple is that they are a learner. To attach yourself to someone, to learn from them, is for you to make yourself their disciple. And what were the followers of Jesus called? Disciples. They were disciples. They were learners. You know, the, the main description of Christ's ministry on the earth was that he was a teacher. That's the main word used of Christ's ministry, that he was a teacher. And so his disciples are the ones who would learn from him. So Paul, by this provision, is including women in learning the word of God. So this is a command to be obeyed. It's the inclusion of women in learning the word of God and C, it's a responsibility, a responsibility for women. They are to be learners. Women are not to be relegated to the nursery or the kitchen or in some mere supporting act of the church where they don't get to sit in the service. Nor are they to relegate themselves to that, thinking that they can only be in the nursery and not sit in the church service. The women have the responsibility to learn the scriptures and what they mean just like the men. So there's a responsibility connected for the women of the church to be learners of the word of God. Fourthly, letter D there in your notes, uh, this provision is a protection, a protection for women. Because of this provision, no one in the church can say women are prohibited from learning the word of God. Nobody can say that. We we cannot prohibit women from learning. Uh, This, of course, doesn't mean that women get to go into the men's Sunday school class or the men's Bible study or something like that. But it means that the women can't be prohibited from sitting in the general service of the church. This provision protects and values the learning of the Bible by women. And by extension, it values what they contribute to the ministry of the church. So this provision... That protects the women of the church from being treated as some second class citizen who doesn't have access to the ability to know and understand the word of God. They are to learn. And finally, number five, number five, uh, this statement puts a condition, a condition on the women. In other words, the learning of the women, the education of the women is to take place in a certain manner. These women are to have a certain attitude when it comes to learning the word of God. It says here, in silence with or in all submission. So up to this point, there really hasn't been anything all that controversial that we have looked at so far in this passage, in this verse, Uh, but here is a little bit of controversy. Paul is saying that women are to learn in silence and all submission. So, is Paul forbidding women to speak in the church? If so, is it just in the church meeting? What about in the church building? What if two or more of the families of the church are gathered together? That's a gathering of believers. Can women not speak in that context? What does it mean that women are to learn in silence? in all submission. Well, let's look at the word silence here first. This term silence is not strictly or narrowly being used for not speaking. It's not being used that way. It doesn't mean that. And so Paul is not saying, women, you can learn, but you can't say anything. That's not what Paul's saying here. The word silence is better translated as quietness, quietness. Now, what's the difference from being quiet and not speaking? What's the difference? Is there a difference? I think there is a difference because you cannot speak. You cannot say something, but that doesn't mean you're quiet because you can still be disruptive. You cannot say anything, but you get up and start walking up and down the sanctuary. You start walking up front, out the back, banging doors. That is not being Quiet. And so the word here is better translated as quietness. This word is only used four times in the Bible. Here in verse 11 and then in verse 12. And then it appears in Acts 22, verse 2, Acts 22, verse 2. And in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 12 and you can look those up later but the idea in all these passages is the idea of not being disruptive of not being disrupt not disrupting whatever is happening so the first part of the way in which women are to learn the word of God in the church is in quietness in a way that is not disruptive to the teaching. But this word silence is not used alone, it's coupled with the phrase, in all submission. So let's look at that phrase, all submission. The word submission comes from the idea of lining oneself up under, okay? Submission means lining oneself up under. At times, it's translated as obedience, and that would seem appropriate to the context of learning, learning and obeying. But as you study the verbal form, this, the, what we have in our text here this morning is the noun form, but if you study the verbal form of this word, you start to develop a picture of what this word means. And when the word is used of individuals, it never is used in this way. Okay, let me say that again. It's never going to be used in this way. It's never going to be used in the sense of making somebody submit. It's never used like that. It is almost always used in the sense of submitting as something that you yourself have to do. In other words, I can't make you submit. You have to choose to submit. And so when we talk about submission here, it is not saying that the women are to be kept in line. That's not what it's saying. It's nobody's responsibility to keep the women in line. It is saying that they are to line themselves up under the teaching of the word of God that is taking place. The word all here just heightens this; It gives it importance. With this in mind that all submission, that the women are to learn in all submission, what does does submission require? What does submission require? If you're going to be submissive, what do you have to have? It's an H word. Humility. Humility. Someone listening to this message this morning might say or think, I'll never submit to a man. But do you realize that God has put all things in subjection to a man, the man Jesus Christ, and that one day everybody will bow the knee to Jesus? That is humility, that is submission. So whether we like it or not, one day everybody is going to submit. Furthermore, being unwilling to submit is an act of pride. And how does God respond to pride? The Bible says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. So, one of the keys to living the Christian life is to be willing and having the will to submit in humility. And that's all this passage is asking of these women that they learn lining themselves up humbly beneath the teaching of the Word of God. The attitude of the women is that they are to be silent in all submission, they are to be quiet and they are to learn with with obedience in mind as disciples of the Lord. So Paul, is uh, Paul is, is he forbidding women to speak in the church? The answer is no. If that had been Paul's attention, he could have said that very, very clearly, but that's not what he says. He's simply and clearly telling the women of the church that they are to behave as disciples. They get to be disciples, and they are to behave as disciples. And disciples don't interrupt their teacher, they don't argue with their teacher, and they don't usurp the teacher's authority. And so women in the church are included in and are personally responsible for learning the word of God in an appropriate manner, and that this is something that no one can prohibit. This provision for the women of the church learning is not just stated for the sake of learning alone. It's connected to a prohibition and that there are some things that women in church are not to do. They can learn, but there are some things that they are not to do. So verse 12, we have the prohibition, the prohibition. Look at verse 12 with me. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Uh, the New King James translates the first word as and, but it's better rendered as but. But I do not permit. So women are to learn, but I don't permit them to do these things. So is this just Paul's opinion? Is this is his opinion? I think this is letter A under prohibition. Is it opinion, question mark? This is no more Paul's opinion than anything else that he writes, it's just his opinion. He is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so this is not Paul's personal opinion, it is God's instruction. And the structure of this statement makes this um, declaration by Paul similar to a command. Another way to put it is, I do not allow. I do not allow. So this is not just Paul's opinion. And we also notice here, there are two things prohibited. Letter B, two things prohibited. To teach and to have authority. To teach and to have authority. Some have tried to turn this into one thing, authoritative teaching. They've tried to say, well, what Paul is really not permitting here is authoritative teaching. Well, that doesn't make sense for two reasons. Number one, all teaching is in some sense authoritative. You can't teach and not have some authority uh, over the ones you are teaching. And secondly, it just doesn't work dramatically in this verse. It doesn't dramatically work to make Teaching and have authority into one thing. And so let's look at these two prohibitions. First, the first prohibition that Paul includes here is to teach. Now, there's not too much quibbling over what it means to teach. It means to give instruction, to present information with the view that the student will know it and understand it. That's all teaching is. instruction the presentation of information with the view that the student will know it and understand it. But when we come to have authority, that little phrase there, that has caused all sorts of books to be written on this passage. It is hotly debated. And part of the reason for the debate is the translation that occurs in the King James Version, which says, usurp authority, usurp authority. And when you add that little word usurp in front of authority, you're giving a negative connotation. It's as if the women, the thing that they're being prohibited from is going against the authority of the men. And that is not what the word means. The word just means to have or exercise authority. So Paul is prohibiting the women from exercising authority. And it's worth noting that in uh, the case of both of these words, to teach and to have authority, Paul is focused on the more fundamental idea of the activity of teaching, and exercising authority rather than any office of teaching or position of teaching and authority. So it's not, he's not saying women can't have positions of teaching, women can't have positions of authority. He's saying these are activities that they are not to do. Now, under this prohibition, we see there that it is limited. So there's two things of the prohibition, to teach and to have authority or exercise authority. But letter C in your notes, we see there's a limit. There's a limitation to this prohibition. Again, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority, and here's the key phrase, over a man. Over a man. Paul's prohibition to women is not broad or universal, but it's rather definite and narrowly limited. So this prohibition is not a blanket prohibition denying women the opportunity to teach or even exercise authority. It's limited to teaching or exercising authority over a man. So Paul is not saying women can't teach. Paul is not saying that women can't exercise authority. He's saying that they can't do these things in relation to men. Therefore, it is permissible that women teach and that women have authority in any category of person other than a man. And so this prohibition of teaching and exercising authority is limited to men, women cannot teach or exercise authority over a man. But also notice that this prohibition emphasizes quietness. Quietness. It ends the 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 uh, verse here uh, with the phrase "but to be in silence." This is the second time this word "silence" or "quietness" has appeared, and uh, the first time was in verse 11, and here in verse 12. And Paul is simply emphasizing the fact that the women of the church are to accept this narrow prohibition, that they can't teach or exercise authority over man quietly and submissively. That's all he's saying, accept this, accept this. So Paul is not saying that the women of the church can't speak in the church. I hope we've established that so far. He's not saying that the women cannot speak in the church, nor is he saying that women are absolutely forbidden from teaching or exercising authority. They can do these things, but they cannot do them with men. Why does Paul say this? On what basis can he say this? On one hand, he permits and even commands women to learn But on the other hand, he prohibits them from the activities of teaching or exercising authority over man. How can he say this? And this is what we find in verse 13 and 14. We get the explanation. The explanation. Uh, Paul provides two explanations for support or two explanations that are the basis for these prohibitions. Number one's creation, or letter A is creation, and letter B is transgression. Because of creation and because of transgression. Look at verse 13. We see creation here because of the creation. For Adam was formed first. So it's order of creation. Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the first part of Paul's explanation comes from the order in which... Man and women and the woman was formed. comes from the order of Adam being formed first, then Eve. So there is something about the creative order that impacts the roles of men and women in general and in the church specifically. Now, two passages to keep in mind here are Genesis chapter 2. And 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We do not have time to go through uh, both of those, but I do want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2 with me. And uh, we're going to focus on verse 18 down through 23 here very quickly. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Notice in this verse, we have the declaration of God's intention. The declaration of God's intention. Uh, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So, in this verse, we see that Adam's existence before Eve is confirmed. At this point, Eve does not exist. It is just Adam, the animals, and the Lord. And God, we also notice in this verse that God is the one who's going to do something. He says, I will make. That's God will make. And what's God going to make? He's going to make Adam a helper. And what kind of helper is God going to make for Adam? One that is comparable to him. Now this term helper does not imply in any way or indicate any notion of inequality or lesser value. In fact, this term helper is a term that is often used of God helping man. And certainly we wouldn't say God is of lesser value than man just because God helps man. But this term does show that there is a supporting role for this helper. This means that the relationship between Adam and this helper is one of Adam's leadership and this helper supporting him. In verses 19 through 20, we see that Adam exercises authority in naming the animals of the earth. God gives him this authority. And when you name something, it is an exercise in authority. Only those in authority get to name. So he is exercising authority here. In verses 22 through 23, we see that the woman is made from man. In other words, the woman is not made from the same stuff that man was made from. Remember what man was made from? The dust of the earth. It's what he was made from. The woman is made from something out of the man. She's not made from the dust of the earth. She's actually made from the man. And so we see there is a relationship in the creative order. Adam exercising his authority over animals and naming them. And if you look over to chapter 3, verse 20... It tells us right at the beginning of the verse, and Adam called his wife's name Eve. So Adam names Eve, and that's not to equate Eve to animals. It's just to say that Adam has the authority over her to name her. So in this passage, in Genesis chapter 2, we have a statement that the functional order of men and women is that men are in the position of authority or leadership, and women are in the position of support. This doesn't say anything about their value or worth or their equality as persons. This is simply saying they have different roles, roles that complement each other, not in competition with each other to place the roles of men and women in competition goes against God's plan and design. And if we go against God's plan and design, it's called sin. And this is not merely sin against one another. This is sin against God himself because it directly challenges God's plan and design. It challenges his authority. So what is, what is it about the order of creation that informs the roles of men and women in the church? It tells us that men are to lead and women are to support their men and leadership. So the creation order deals with authority. The creation order not only indicates the relationship of the roles of men and women in the home, Adam and Eve, husband and wife, it also transfers it to the society and then the church. And while we do not expect the world to follow biblical principles, we do expect the word of God to be obeyed in the church. So that's the first reason, the creation. Secondly, the second reason, the second part of the explanation is the transgression. The transgression, this is found in verse 14. So verse 13 tells us, we're back in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'll wait while I turn there. (laughs) You're probably already there. Um, Chapter 2, verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, that's the creation, then verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression." So there's something about the transgression of Eve that is related to this prohibition that a woman cannot teach or have authority over a man. Now, to help us with this, I would like to offer a slightly different translation to clarify what I believe is the main point. And this is the way I would do it. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman has become a transgressor after being deceived. So you notice it's slightly different there. But the woman has become a transgressor after being deceived. The point of emphasis here is that the woman became a transgressor um, because she was deceived. And you'll notice here that Paul says nothing of the sin of Adam. He says nothing of the sin of Adam. Why doesn't he mention the sin of Adam? It's very simple because it's unimportant to his point. It's not relevant to the point that he is making. He's focused on the woman at this point. And so he's not going to say anything about the sin of Adam. He's focused on the woman. The event that precipitated or led up to the transgression was the woman's deception by Satan through the serpent. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the nature of this transgression, and by the way, the word transgression simply means stepping out of bounds here 's the guardrails. When you transgress, you get outside of the guardrails here 's god's design here 's god's plan, and when I step out of that, that's called transgression and so when we when we think about transgressing, let's for example, say the law. When the Jews transgress the law, here's the law, here's what it says. And when they do something outside of that, it's called transgression. So the nature of the transgression here was the disobedience of God's command. And the result of the transgression is that the woman became a transgressor. When she Now, I know this, this will be amazing, but when she transgressed, she became a transgressor, right? We understand that. That's not not highfalutin philosophy. That's very simple. When the woman transgressed, she became a transgressor. And the interesting thing about here is the word transgression that is used here indicates to us that this was a change of state, change of position, a change of condition. And that this condition continues on after this one act. So this one act moved Eve into the position of being a transgressor. Now, in the record of Genesis chapter 3, we see that the woman, instead of waiting for the leadership of Adam, reversed the roles and took the leading position in speaking to the serpent. And that this resulted in her being deceived and transgressing the command of God. What the woman did here not only affected her relationship with God, but it had a profoundly negative effect upon her relationship with her husband Adam. In Genesis chapter three verse 16, it says, "And God is speaking about the results of this sin to the woman. He says, "Your transgression, uh, or excuse me, your desire shall be for your husband, but He shall rule over you." That's a fundamental difference in the relationship between Adam and Eve. Before that, Adam was to be the leader. Here it says Adam is going to control. That's the word for rule, is to control you. For the reasons that Paul gives for prohibiting women from teaching... Uh, excuse me, so the reasons that Paul gives for prohibiting women from teaching men is A, that God has ordained a creation order that naturally puts men in a position of leadership, and B, the transgression committed by the woman after being deceived was in effect the result of a gender role reversal, where she took the leadership away from Adam. But I want us to see here that Paul almost never ends on a negative note. He always kind of ends on a positive note. So let's look at verse 15, the preservation, the preservation. And then we're talking about the, the preservation of women. Nevertheless, nevertheless. So even with all of this happening, even with this negative context that he just got done mentioning in verse 14, he says, nevertheless, she will be saved in or through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. Now, let me tell you one immutable fact about this verse. It's hard to understand. (laughs) It's hard to understand what exactly this verse is meaning. If you have a study Bible and the person next to you has a different study Bible, you can probably compare study notes and they'll say different things about what this verse means. But uh, I'm going to tell you what it means, okay? So don't be confused about all that other stuff. I'm going to tell you what it means. So what is this verse saying? What is this verse saying? This is my interpretation that I'm going to try to explain how I came to this. It's saying that women today can be preserved, that is kept from falling into the same transgression as Eve if they accept God their God-ordained role as women and they will continually be preserved from this transgression if they continue on in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So my interpretation of this verse is is talking about the preservation of women in the first century, but even today, from the same transgression that Eve fell into when she reversed the roles, when she took the leadership. So let me explain to you why uh, this is the interpretation now, why do I understand this as talking about women in general? Now, why, not, why isn't it talking about Eve or some other specific woman? Well, if you look at verses 13 through 15 as a whole, we see a progression that moves from Eve in verse 13 to the woman in verse 14. So notice and when it says Eve, that's a definite person. An identifiable person, but when it says the woman, it loses some of that identification. And then in verse fifteen, at the beginning of the verse, it says she, she, referring back to the woman. And then in the second part of verse fifteen, it says a, or, or excuse me, they, they. So the pro- the progress that is happening here has the effect of moving from a specific individual Eve to the general group in which Eve is a part, the group of women. From Eve as an individual to all women, from the particular to the general, from the individual to the group. So that is why I think this is talking about all women. Now, why do I take the phrase, she will be saved as she will be preserved? Well, the term "save." saved or salvation is actually used in a number of ways. It's the, the, the least amount of times that it's used is in relation to spiritual salvation. It's almost always used in the sense of being delivered, being preserved from an enemy, from sickness, something like that, from something bad happening. That's how it's used. And so by using the word preserved, we see that it's not talking about spiritual salvation. It's not talking about spiritual salvation because, number one, spiritual salvation is not in the context. Did anybody read anything in here about being saved from your sins? No, because it's not there. Secondly, if this were talk about, talking about spiritual salvation, it would mean that a woman earned her salvation by her works. By bearing children and continuing in love, faith, holiness with self-control. It's not talking about spiritual salvation. It's talking about preserving women from something. And that something is the transgression of Eve. And so why do I take, thirdly, why do I take through childbearing, through childbearing as meaning their God-ordained role as women? How does childbearing equal to the role of women? Well, here's why. When, it, when you see the phrase through childbearing or in childbearing here, it's an example of what is called synecdoche. Synecdoche. Anybody heard of that word before? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. So me, I mean, I've heard it once or twice, but I still got to look things up. Synecdoche. And what's, what is that? It's a literary device where you take one thing and it represents the whole where one characteristic of a person is used to represent the whole person. Let me give you an example. Uh, when, When in the Old Testament it talks about King David, often it talks about the king as representing the whole nation, doesn't it? The king represents the whole nation. That's what synecdoche is. That is, in fact, synecdoche, where you take one aspect, and it represents the whole of something. And so what is the one thing that is absolutely, totally totally unique to women? Childbearing. Childbearing. Men cannot bear children. There's a lot of things that men and women can do in common. Childbearing is not one of them. And so when Paul uses this phrase through childbearing, he is emphasizing this unique role that God has given women, that God has ordained for women. And if that, and if that women accept this God-ordained role, they can be delivered. They can be preserved from falling into the same transgression that Eve took part in, namely, gender role reversal. And so women can be preserved from falling into this by remaining in the role that God has established for them, a unique role, a role that no man can fulfill. And part of remaining in this role is not teaching or exercising authority over a man, which is exactly what Eve did. So let me wrap, wrap up some with some uh, implications for today's. So ladies, from this passage, what, what can you take away from this passage? Number one, ladies, you need to be learners. You need to be learners. You need to study God's word and you need to be teachable. You need to be learners. You're commanded to be learners of God's word here. Secondly, ladies, I think you can learn from this passage that you need to let men lead. Let Men lead. Encourage them to lead. Encourage them when they lead. Do not be critical or cynical of their leadership. Doesn't mean you don't have anything to input or say. But do not discourage men from leading. And thirdly, ladies, teach. Teach and lead in the appropriate context, which simply is, you can't teach or lead men. But that leaves a whole bunch of ministries in the church that you can teach and lead in. So be active. Don't focus on, well, I can't do this, I can't do that. Focus on what the Bible says you can do. Men, what implications are there for us in this? Number one, men teach. We need men who are willing to teach. Nobody else is going to teach the men but the men. We need men to teach. Secondly, men, lead. Lead. Don't dictate. Don't command. Don't demand. Lead. The sign of a weak man or a sign of a weak man is one who uses ultimatums. Do this or else. That's weakness, that's not leadership, that's weakness. Men lead, the first place to start to lead is in your home. Once you can lead in your home, then it can be transferred to the church. Thirdly, men, honor and praise women honor and praise women and their god-ordained role celebrate motherhood seek the best for the women in your life help them to help you a good leader doesn't do what they want a good leader does what is best for the ones that they are leading men be leaders teach and honor and praise women and their God ordained roles. Won't you stand with me as we have a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed to our fellowship time? Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us and this passage of Scripture. Lord, we are bombarded daily by what our culture says men and women should do what men and women should be like. Lord, almost none of it follows what you have written in your word. And Father, we know that if we followed your word, all the excesses of our culture when it comes to the roles of men and women would be cared for. All the abuses that we see in our culture of the roles of men and women would be cared for. Lord, help us, help us to not only follow these precepts that we have looked at this morning, but help us to show the world around us that when Christian men and women follow your word in maintaining the roles that you have established for us, that this is not only good, it is the best thing for us. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to be a good testimony. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.